You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now, brothers, you'll find it on page 1162 of the church Bible. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The good news is there's only 178 days till Christmas. I know that you're counting. Um, it's also, you know that the nights are fair drawing in already. And uh, come by the time you come back from your summer holidays, you will... Uh, Uh, start being bombarded with Christmas adverts. So I thought, it's time for a Christmas sermon. So that's what you're going to get. See, there's a problem here. Paul says, I'm not commanding you. Generosity cannot be commanded. Giving is a grace. We saw last week, and uh, if you want to catch up on that, you can go online, all the sermons are online. But we saw last week that giving is a grace that God gives to us. And the method, as we just read, was first of all, we give ourselves to the Lord, then to his people, and then we count it as a real privilege to be able to give as much as we can. We are to excel in this grace of giving. But Paul says, I am not pressurizing you. And then he does something quite strange, because he says, I'm not doing it, I'm not commanding you, and then he does pressurize them. Because look at at verse 8. I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it. And he uses two comparisons. First of all, he says, I want to compare it with the earnestness of others. And he's writing to the Corinthians, who, as we saw last week, were a relatively well-off group of people in a relatively well-off area, although many of the actual church would have been poor. And he's saying, look at the Macedonian churches who were so poor, I didn't even ask them. They asked for the privilege of being able to give. And he says, well, look at them. And I think he wants to provoke them to rivalry. It's a bit like uh, I saw an advert for a UCC, well, not an advert, but a a prayer letter stroke request for funding for a, a UCCF worker in Scotland. And it pointed out that CUs in England are better supported by the English churches than Scottish churches are, and we have to be subsidized by the English. 
And I think that was designed to appeal to a certain nationalistic pride, which may not necessarily be wrong. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look at the Macedonians. Look at them. I I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He's saying, is your attitude really like the Macedonians? He wants to test the sincerity and the reality of their love. Isn't that interesting? Even even that alone is just a fascinating idea. Because we say, well, my treasure's in heaven, it's not on earth, so my money doesn't really matter. And usually the people who say that are the people who have lots of money and don't want to give it away because it doesn't really matter. But what we give illustrates where our hearts are at. And that's what Paul is saying. But he makes a much, much greater comparison. Verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so I've entitled this, Outgiving Jesus. Is it possible for you or I ever to outgive Jesus? And I want us to consider what Jesus has actually given. Sometimes in our lives, we focus, often actually in our lives, we focus very, very much on ourselves, where we are at, what we are doing, how we feel. But I want us to pause and to think, well, what about Christ? What did Christ do? The first thing we note is just simply this, that Christ was rich. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Rich in what way? Well, let me try and explain this in a way that if you are not a Christian, you think, what are you talking about? Um, That I hope will be helpful to you. And if you are a Christian, I hope that you will reflect upon it, because the more I reflect upon it, in a sense, the more difficult it is, but the more wonderful it is. Jesus did not come into existence in the stable in Bethlehem. Jesus existed before that. In the beginning, says John, was the Word. The Word was with God. He's referring to Jesus, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. It's a great theme in the Bible. Jesus existed before he was born. What does that mean? Are we talking here some kind of Christian version of reincarnation? No. What we're talking about this, we're talking about the nature of who God is. And that's why Christian teaching about God is so different from any other religion. Because we do teach that there is one God who is the creator, who is all-powerful, who is sovereign. But we also teach that that one God is Trinity, that that one God exists in three persons, that, uh, as our catechism says, the three persons are distinct, yet are one in substance, essence, or nature. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, 
The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Three persons, one God. And if that doesn't do your head in, you're totally asleep. You're not thinking. Because that is the most, in one sense, it's one of the most simple and yet one of the most complex things that if you were sitting there folding your arms saying, yeah, I get that, I understand that, I'm saying you don't get it. If you understand it, you don't get it. It's, um, it's a bit like quantum physics or quantum mechanics. If you say you've got it, you haven't got it. The Trinity is very difficult to grasp, but part of the importance of the Trinity is this. If we say God is love, if before there was anything to exist, who did God love? The answer is God is love because there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that perfect love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, for us, who we, part of the difficulty that we have here, and just, you know, hang on to this, part of the difficulty that we have is that we find it difficult to conceive of anything out with ourselves. That, you know, the world existing without us, or imagine this, the universe existing without our world, or there being something other than our universe. And what the Bible tells us is we are not the center of everything, that our earth is not the center of everything, and even that our universe is not the center of everything, but that God is. And that at one time, you and I did not exist, this earth did not exist, the universe did not exist. At one time, nothing existed except God. And that is very, very hard for us to think and to grasp. And I don't think we're meant to understand it as though somehow we're detached, looking upon it. It's beyond us. It's beyond our grasping. It's beyond our understanding. But we can understand enough. We can understand enough to know this, that Jesus Christ is not a created being, that he did not just come into existence in that stable, that he is actually the creator In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, says the writer to the Hebrews, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Jesus is the person through whom God made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Or Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Ignatius, long, long ago, wrote this. Our God, Jesus Christ, now that he is with the Father, is all the more revealed in his glory. Christianity is not a thing of silence. Sorry, not a thing of silence only, but of manifold greatness. Right from the very beginning, it's funny, you know, you get people today and they'll say to you, well, the idea of Jesus as being God only came along much, much later in the Christian church. And really we need to get back to a basic Christianity, which is Jesus as a man going around doing good. But the notion of him as being God wasn't really there. It was. It was the very core and heart of New Testament Christianity. Uh, The dialogue with Trifo, written probably about 100 plus years after the death of the apostles, says this, 
For Christ is King and Priest and God and Lord and Angel and Man and Captain and Stone and a Son born and first made subject to suffering, then returning to heaven and again coming with glory, and he is preached as having the everlasting kingdom. So I prove from all the Scriptures. Christ, the glory of Christ, is something that you and I need to grasp and to need to understand. You are a Christian. You are a follower of Christ, and He is absolutely glorious. He is beyond you're singing about, beyond your imagining, beyond all the words that we can put together. You cannot lock him or systematize him. You just, when you begin to grasp just a tiny bit of who he is, you stand back in absolute awe and wonder and amazement. He came from the glory. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He was rich, rich beyond anything that you can possibly imagine. But he humbled himself. He, yet for your sakes, he became poor. Now, Paul builds on this in Philippians 2, which is probably an early hymn or an early creed. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ became poor. Now, there's a mistake that people make here, and the mistake is this. They understand poverty only in terms of physical poverty. Actually, Jesus probably wasn't that poor. He was a carpenter's son. He would have a roof over his head, and so on, until he began his ministry. That's when you get the, the quote in Luke 9, 58, where Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, because whilst on earth, he gave up his home. But he would have lived a fairly normal life for first century Palestine. So when we say that Christ became poor, it certainly includes a a level of physical poverty. But it's much, much more than that. There is ridicule, there is rejection, there is persecution, there is betrayal, there is suffering, and ultimately there is the cross. He became poor. It's an old hymn. Well, we sang kind of more modern version in a way of um, may I never lose the wonder of, of the cross. There's an old hymn about lead me to Calvary lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thy agony. Jesus was crucified. The God who, as Kenrick puts it, the hand that flung stars into space was nailed to a cross. And that, again, is such a, that's more, that's even, for me, that's even more mind-blowing than the Trinity. This image of this glorious, powerful, so powerful that the whole universe is held together by him. In him we live and move and have our being. 
but he's spat upon and he's abused and he's nailed to a cross. That's extraordinary. Again, the early church, Melito, a guy called the philosopher, he uh, was about the year 150. He wrote this, he that hung up on the earth, sorry, he that hung up the earth in space was himself hanged up. He that fitted the heavens was fixed with nails. He that bore up the earth was born upon a tree. The Lord of all was subject to ignominy in a naked body. God put to death the king of Israel, slain with Israel's right hand. It is the absolute paradox. It is the most extraordinary thing that you take and you balance these two things. Christ in his glory and Christ in his humiliation. And his humiliation is increased because of his glory. When the two are set together, it is absolutely breathtaking. And Paul says that. He says, I'm, I'm not wanting just to compare you with the Macedonians. He says, let's forget that. Let's think about what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Where did he come from? What did he endure? And so he talks about his grace, the grace of Christ. Why did he do that? Last week, we saw that grace is just basically generosity, something we don't deserve. Um, in the old days, well, some of you may still get this. Uh, when I uh, we did, a, did a job, uh, an oil rig platform one time, and also on the farm, especially on the farm, remember Friday would come around, or the last day of the month, and you'd get a wage packet. And it was just great, especially when you were a teenager and you weren't used to having money, and you opened it, and there's, this, and there's all this money in cash, uh, which was great. And I mean, the thrill of getting cash, it doesn't quite work the same when you look at your bank account and you see that you got paid. Actually getting an envelope with cash in it, now people would be very suspicious if, that, if you got that, but it was just great. And you'd, you'd open your wage, and you look at it, and you count it out. Maybe 40 quid, that was a lot of money in those days. And you go, wow, that's great, I'm rich, I can go off and do various things. What you didn't do was when you were given your wage packet, go to your employer and say, thank you so much. That's just wonderful. That's great. Why did you do this? Why did you give me this money? None of you, I guarantee you probably get paid, those of you who work, you probably get paid monthly and you do not, when there's a pay slip comes to you, you do not write off to, you know, the council or the NHS or the education board or the factory or whatever it is, you do not write them and say, thank you very much for giving me my my wages. Try it and see if that increases actually your wage. I don't know. Maybe the gratitude will so stun them. Um, You usually look and say, oh, look at the tax that came off that. Look at this, you know. And it's all going straight out the bank account again immediately to pay bills. You get your wages, you don't say, wow. We are due wages. As human beings, we are due wages. And Romans tells us what those wages are. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How many people go, I don't believe in God or I won't follow Jesus Christ because he's not good enough for me. Because he doesn't give me what I deserve. Because they're thinking, if God gave me what I deserve, I'd be better off, I'd be healthier, people wouldn't die, all these good things would happen to me. And the truth is, they've got the truth, but completely at the wrong end of the spectrum. God doesn't give what they deserve, but what they deserve is not all these good things. What we deserve is death. 
what we deserve is separation from God. And God doesn't give us that. He gives us opportunity to repent and to to turn and to get new life. The gift of God is eternal life. And that's why Jesus came. I love Athanasius' statement. He became what we are that we might become what he is. Now, again, stop. Just think. What he is? He's the king of glory. What he is? He's the one who created the whole universe. What he is? He is the son of the father. He is in the trinity. And he became us, what we are, human beings, screwed up, messed up, mixed up. He came in a human body, carried human sin, experienced human sin, not his own, but given to him. And he did that so that we might become what he is. Not like the Mormons say gods, because their definition of God is so pathetic compared with this, but that we might come into a relationship with God the Father, which puts us in the status of a son or daughter of God. And again, I love, um, I put it up there because I love it so much, Calvin's statement on this. For the same reason, it was also imperative that he who was to become our Redeemer be true God and true man. It was his task to swallow up death. Who but the life could do this? It was his task to conquer sin. Who but very righteousness could do this? It was his task to rout the powers of world and air. Who but a power higher than world and air could do this? Now, where does life or righteousness or lordship and authority of heaven lie but with God alone? Therefore, our most merciful God, when he willed that we be redeemed, made himself our redeemer in the person of his only begotten son. And at that point, you're not being handed the wage packet. At that point, you're standing back and you're going, wow, you're kidding me. You're kidding? This, this is true. This is real. This is what he did. Do you understand why the gospel is so much more acceptable to people who are actually poor? Or to people who are deeply convicted of their own sin, who know that they don't deserve to go to heaven? It's because it's so amazing that they see the grace and they go, yeah, I can. People who often are rich think, well, no, I can make it. I can do it. I can earn enough merit. I, I, I've been rewarded already by this. I'll be rewarded again. And when you put our goodness and our righteousness and contrast it with Christ's glory and Christ's righteousness, it is just so infinitesimal. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, Christ became poor so that we might become rich. Does that mean physical riches? Well, to some extent, yes. But actually, a whole lot more. I mean, along with Christ, we freely get all things. Think of it more as the opposite of Christ's poverty. Christ was condemned. Christ was spat upon. We are praised. Well done, good and faithful servant. Christ was rejected. We get accepted. Christ was in chains. We are freed. Christ suffered hell. We get heaven. Matthew Henry says, He became poor that we might be made rich, rich in the love and favor of God, rich in the blessings and promises of the covenant, rich in the hopes of eternal life, being heirs of the kingdom. 
you understand how pathetic you are when you think, if I do this, if I read this, if I pray this, if I don't do that, then I will be accepted by God. And God in his glory, you're like a, you're like a gnat staring up at an elephant thinking, I'm going to wrestle with you. Or I'm going to make myself as powerful as you. Not at hope, not a chance. But Christ comes. And Christ takes every bit of our sin and every bit of our fear and every bit of our, our filth. And he transforms it and he carries it in himself and he gives it, gives to us his glorious robes. And that's why I said this is a Christmas sermon, because that's what Christmas is about. Jesus becoming incarnate. Jesus becoming man. Jesus, the Son of God, giving himself for us. In the fourth century in Turkey, there was an old man who was a bishop. One Christmas, he wanted to show his gratitude for what Jesus had done. So he went to a slum area of the city with a big heavy sack upon his back. At one door, he was greeted by three very poor children. He took the sack off his back and he took from it three woolen robes which he had purchased and he gave it to them. His name was St. Nicholas. That's how we get Sinterklaas, Santa Claus, St. Nick. Santa Claus wasn't invented by Coca-Cola. That's what people think. The whole idea of St. Nicholas came from St. Nicholas, actually, in Turkey in the 4th century. And it was meant to be you gave gifts at Christmas because Christ had been given to you. You didn't give gifts at Christmas because if you give them an Xbox, they will give you a diamond ring or whatever it is. You didn't save all your money at Christmas and start Christmas. I mean, that's what's wrong with the Christmas adverts. Not that they're really annoying, that they're totally blasphemous. That's what's wrong with them. Because the Christmas adverts are not about telling you, go and give this to the poor because Jesus has given to you who are poor. The Christmas adverts are, go and spend stuff on yourself. It's the very antithesis of what Jesus did. It's the opposite. We celebrate Christmas, that's fine. But let's celebrate it remembering that he came from the glory. That's why it's so wonderful when people at Christmas do share meals, do share what they have. It's a generous and radical giving. See, what Paul is teaching us here is not that we give so that we can get back. We don't invest in Christ. We give because we have received. Isn't that horrible when you get a preacher who'll stand up and say, if you put this amount of money in, it's a really good investment because God will bless you and you'll get so much back. Why are you giving then? You're giving because you're going to get something back. It's the opposite of what's being said here. What's being said here is, look at what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus gave to you. How can you hold anything back? When he asks, how can you hold it back? And that's really the summary of this. How do you react when you get a gift or an unexpected bonus? That says a whole lot about you. Not that you probably play the lottery, but you win the lottery. What are you going to do with it? Now, some of you are going to admit to this, and some of you are going to say, no, I don't do that, and you're purer than me. 
Have you ever fantasized about what would happen if um, you won the lottery or somehow 10 million pounds just appeared in your bank account? You know, what would I do with that? How would I spend that? I was listening to, a, as usual, to a Matt Chandler sermon. He was talking about Bill Gates. Apparently, Bill Gates has got so much money that he's the 26th richest country in the world uh, as a person. And that without his money being increased, in other words, without investments getting percentage and all that kind of stuff, he, would ha- he can spend $6 million a day and it would take him 50 years to get rid of it. $6 million a day. You know, he's extraordinary. Well, that doesn't happen to any of us. But sometimes we, we receive great blessing. You get a bonus in some way or other. What would you do with it? You pay off your debts, fine. Then what? Buy a bigger house, car, foreign holidays, up your lifestyle. Or you can bless others, which is what Paul is saying here. The basic principle of giving in the Old Testament was not a tithe. It was give the first fruits. Take what God blesses you with and use it to help the poor and use it to help those in in need. Use it to spread and communicate the good news. You say you are in fellowship. You share with those in fellowship. You give according to what you have received. See, if you gave me a hundred pounds and you'd received a hundred pounds, that's a massive gift. You're Bill Gates and you give me a hundred pounds, that's like one second of your time. It's nothing. It's nothing. Absolutely nothing. What have we received? Chapter 9, verse 15 says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Ephesians 1 says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And some people will immediately go away, well, that's not enough. What do you mean he's blessed us in the spiritual realms with Christ? That just sounds like super spiritual sentimentality rubbish. I'll tell you what it means. It means that you are a daughter, that you are a son of the living God. And that no matter what hell throws at you, no matter what the devil throws at you, no matter what life throws at you, no matter what illness, what poverty, what breakdowns occur in your life, You can't lose that because it's in the heavenly realms, because it's kept in heaven for you, because it's guaranteed, as Peter says. So having every spiritual blessing in Christ is actually a fantastic thing, and it's not that you're going to get it. If you're a Christian, you've got it. It's yours. You've got it. You're given eternal life. Romans 8 adds to that. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The cattle on a thousand hills are God's. But they're yours. They're yours. As we have received grace, so we can be generous. We are set free to serve, and we are set free to give. I wish it could be Christmas every day. I'm not going to sing. For the Christian, it actually is. For the Christian, it's Christmas every day because every day we freely receive and every day we freely give. For what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. And that thankfulness is expressed in our giving. Calvin again. 
Christ has consecrated poverty in his own person that believers may no longer regard it with horror. I don't want to be poor. Maybe you are poor. You don't want to stay poor. That's perfectly human, perfectly understandable. But we don't need to regard poverty with horror because Christ was poor. But this is the key thing. By his poverty, says Calvin, he has enriched us all for this purpose, that we may not feel it hard to take from our abundance what we may lay out upon our brethren. I can't give this because what if something goes wrong? I can't give this because what, you know, I need to lay money aside. I need to do this. I need to look after myself. I need to look after my family. And Paul comes and he says to us, no, Jesus gave himself. God gave the son. You, your family is now the Christian family. How can you say the love of God is in you, says John, and not give to your brothers and sisters? That's the Christian attitude to giving. See, we live in an entitlement culture. And remember, and that, I don't just mean people on benefits and so on. I'm not, I, I actually think it's wonderful that we live in a culture where people who are unemployed don't have to be sold into slavery. I think it's wonderful that where people who are poor get free health care. I think that's a fantastic thing, and we should thank God for that. But of course, there are people who misuse and abuse that. But there are richer people who do that as well. I remember a man who once had all his debts paid off. You know what his attitude was? Oh, I deserve that. That's what should happen to me. And that's our attitude so often, isn't it? Of course God will forgive me because it's what I deserve. If that's the case, you don't understand grace, and you don't understand generosity, and you don't understand giving. If you do understand, you're like St. Nicholas, who's got a sack on his back, and it's full of grace to give to others. In chapter 12 and verse 9, Paul was told in the midst of a, I think, a fairly severe illness, my grace is sufficient for you. He wanted to be healed, and God said, no, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Let's us, do we believe that? Let's receive grace, accept grace, and give grace. Let's open our hearts, open our minds, open our wallets. Freely we have received, freely give. Let's pray. Lord, it's so difficult for us to look beyond ourselves and to grasp and to understand what reality is. There is something that our minds just are stunned by that cannot, we cannot get hold of. That you came from such glory, a glory that we cannot even begin to comprehend. And you came to this earth and you were humiliated and you were abused and you were rejected and you were despised and you died and you carried all our sins and suffered our hell so that we who have rejected you, we who were your enemies, we who shake our fists at you, we who want to be as God. We, instead of going to hell, 
instead of getting what we deserve, might be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, might be given new life. And Lord, we bless you that though many times we stumble and fall, we sin and we sin and we sin again, yet your grace is sufficient. You give and you give and you give again. Lord, I pray for those here who are broken people, that you would enable them to experience and know your grace. Those who fear that they are rejected, those who fear that they have committed the unpardonable sin, those who are confused in their minds, those who are hurt and wounded. Oh Lord, help each one to see that you died for them and that along with you, the Father graciously gives us all things. And I pray for those of us here who are not broken people, but we are proud and self-sufficient and arrogant. We don't see your glory because we're looking at our own. Lord, help us to see how pathetic that is and help us to look beyond ourselves. I pray for those who as yet do not know you that even what they have heard this morning, what we have understood may be used that we would call out to you, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Help us, O God. Enable us to see Jesus. Enable us to be those who have received grace. And because we have received grace, we are generous people with our time, with our money, with our lives. Enable us, O Lord, to reflect you and to be givers. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.